This episode of The Explainer is supported by daft.ie. Are you buying or selling a home? If it's for sale, it's on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, how has David Cameron made a surprise return to British politics? Now, you'd be forgiven for thinking you've had some sort of Bobby Ewing flashback to 2016, but no, it is 2023, and David Cameron, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, is back. Now, Rishi Sunak surprised absolutely everyone last week with the announcement that Cameron, the man responsible for paving the way towards Brexit, was to return to the fold as the new Foreign Secretary. Sunak has exploited a loophole to get him there, one that doesn't involve electing Cameron, by appointing him to the House of Lords, as Lord David Cameron of Chipping Norton, no less. So today we're looking at Cameron and his political past and now his future and asking, was this shock move a stroke of genius by Sunak, as some are saying, or a last-ditch effort to appear in control by a failing government? To take a look at all of this today, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Dominic McGrath, who's a political correspondent with PA Media and who's formerly of this parish. Dominic, lovely to see you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Dominic, just how shocked were you to see David Cameron appearing at 10 Downing Street last week? Yeah, I think uh, I think everyone was um, was shocked by it. You know, in Westminster, it's famously quite hard to um, keep secrets. Um, things leak out quite easily, but no one um, knew David Cameron was coming back. It was a bit like turning up for an exam, having revised for, you know, one question. And that question was Suella Braverman's um, sacking. And it turned out then there was an entirely new question. Um, And I had, you know, write very rapidly a thousand word um, profile of who David Cameron was, which I was not expecting to do when I woke up that morning. Yeah, people may have heard the moment of shock on Sky News. You have Kay Burley and Deputy Political Editor Sam Coates, and they're confronted with all of a sudden, David Cameron arriving unexpectedly at 10 Downing Street. Not quite sure who this uh, might be. Uh, if somebody's sacked, then, of course, they don't uh, come up Downing Street. That's done in private. That's the security detail just opening the door for... David, David Cameron! Cameron. <laughs> I was not expecting okay. that! <laughs> OK. He's known by some commentators, I think, as the last stable PM. I'm not sure what that says about UK politics, but his legacy really, Dominic, is Brexit. Where did he go wrong with it? Yes. So I think it's kind of interesting how, in retrospect, we can say that David Cameron was the last stable prime minister, given that he came to power not um, with a majority, he came to power in a hung parliament um, in 2010, in a coalition with um, Nick Clegg's Liberal Democrats, that was, you know, to be clear, the first coalition I think since 1945 in the UK. It's not like Ireland, where coalitions are relatively normal. It was very unusual, uh, and there were questions about whether that coalition would even, you know, last the full term. It did to 2015, and in many ways, actually, it was David Cameron winning his surprise majority in 2015 in that election that proved his undoing. Because in 2013, he had finally caved to pressure from the Tory right, from um, your early Brexiteers, um, as it were, to promise to hold an in-out referendum on uh, EU membership. Some have said that perhaps he did not expect to win a majority that there would have been a continuation of that Liberal Democrat coalition, which would have probably ruled out a referendum. But he did win a majority. He defeated 
Ed Miliband, uh, the Liberal Democrats were um, devastated in that election. He came to power having to fulfill that promise. Of course, we'd already seen actually two referendums during uh, David Cameron's term as Prime Minister. Again, referendums are quite unusual in the UK. Again, unlike in Ireland, there'd been a referendum on the alternative vote. Um, Cameron had won that. He'd, of course, won the much more uh, well-known referendum on the Scottish independence. And so there was a sense of, you know, he was he was confident. He was a man who could, who could deliver. He could win elections, win referendums. And as we all know, it did not uh, work out like that with Brexit. And a huge gamble and, a, and one that until now we assumed he'd paid for it with his political career. That is obviously not the case now. But so looking back at his early days, when did he first enter politics then, Dominic? So David Cameron was in many ways, uh, but I think it's really important to stress this, a breath of fresh air in the Tory party. Um, you know, he wasn't called uh, the heir to Valair for, for nothing. Um, he emerged as a kind of rising star in the early 2000s. Um, he won the 2005 um, leadership election, defeating, you know, your, your kind of big beasts of the Tory party like David Davis and Liam Fox, uh, both of whom are still around, um, you know, as senior figures in Tory party circles. But he was, he was young, he was different, and his mission really was to uh, detoxify the Tory party after the years of kind of infighting, chaos, soul-searching that happened uh, under Ian Duncan Smith and Michael Howard after that you know, devastating landslide defeat at the hands of, of Tony Blair. You know, he had a background that was really steeped in the party. He was a researcher, special advisor. He then did a stint in um, a commercial PR firm, which some would say really, I suppose, emboldened his um, ability to pitch himself in terms of his style. But he was he was probably as close the Tories could get to a Blairite type figure, wasn't he? You know, well-dressed, young, projecting a different sort of a party image. And that was very, very intentional. Um, and he, you know, he and George Osborne, who would go on to be his um, chancellor and his, you know, real political, I suppose, soulmate in many ways, they really admired um, Blair and in some ways admired Brown for how they had you know, grasped the reins of a Labour Party that had, you know, for a long time, arguably, some would say, failed to modernise and they brought it into a new era. Um, and they really tried to do that with the Tory party. You know, they brought in or they tried to bring in you know, more women, more ethnic minority candidates to pivot the party away from, you know, uh, discussions about tax, tax cuts, predominantly immigration, and actually try and project and speak in the language of, of values that Blair himself had um, had perfected. And of course, there was that very famous quip that David Cameron said, I think, to Tony Blair, and maybe his first PMQs or early PMQs, you know, he was the future once, which was an excellent um, jibe, but also did show that they really were following intentionally in the path blazed by Blair. So he, he has intentions, he has uh, ambition. How then did Cameron rise to become Prime Minister? It really is that push towards the centre ground. It was dragging his party towards the centre and making it again um, amenable to voters who had seen it as again a party that was by the end of Major's time in office, um, in office for a long time. It was stale, it was sleazy, it was dominated by you know, quite boring, quite dull, middle-class men. And Cameron really tried to shift that, and he did it very successfully. And of course, he was aided by the period of politics leading up to 2010, where you know, 
Tony Blair had given way to Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown had hoped that as a new prime minister, he would be able to be a new, turn over a new leaf uh, after the kind of um, collapse in support for Blair. But then, of course, there was a financial crisis that upended global politics. Um, and the Tories were ruthless in blaming uh, Labour and blaming Gordon Brown for his handling of the public finances. And there was, of course, also the um, expenses scandal that really just you know, damaged general trust in politicians. And that, of course, caught up politicians from across um, the party spectrum as well. And even looking back at the very famous um, Rose Garden press conference he gave, David Cameron, uh, with Nick Clegg, um, you know, people remarked how chummy it was, um, for want of a better word. But, you know, he, he used words that, in many ways, Sunak has been using today about, you know, the need for long-term decisions and, you know, restoring trust in politics. So in some ways, things haven't changed um, all these years on. But that was the idea, that it was it was a new type of politics for a new era after the, the long period in office uh, of Labour. Uh, you mentioned a couple of names there, just for our listeners. So who is Nick Clegg? Because it's it, you're reminding me, I'm having flashbacks to all of these Rose Garden type press conferences and the very uh, modern language. And these guys, they, they were very media savvy. They were. Um, yeah, Nick Clegg, um, I suppose, is, is now better known as uh, working, I suppose, in, in PR communications or leading partly um, Meta, formerly um, Facebook. But of course, at one time, he was um, a brand new star of British politics leading the Liberal Democrats. And he went into, into a coalition with um, David Cameron. And that coalition, as I said, lasted for um, five years from 2010 to 2015. And then Gordon Brown, it's, it's, it's easy to remember, isn't it? Cameron and Blair, the, the shining stars. But then you have Brown along with the Nick Cleggs of the, of the outfits. Of course, yeah, Gordon Brown was um, Prime Minister after Blair. Um, he was, of course, again, a, a, a shining light in that um, New Labour constellation. And he was, of course, Chancellor, a uh, major figure in the party. And he, was, he lost the election in 2010. So Cameron hurt bruised after Brexit, walks off into the sunset, whether he's happy with his performance or not, we'd imagine it's the latter. Britain, whether you're pro or anti-Brexit, is hurting since 2016 and, and since this vote. You've got to be said, we've had the list Truss uh, debacle, all of that. How does the public view David Cameron then today? It's a difficult question um, because it probably depends on who you are and what you believe and what you always thought of David Cameron. So David Cameron probably does still retain some support in the, you know, in your kind of Southern England um, Tory heartlands. But actually what's interesting is that if Richie Sunak, and we'll probably talk about it later, brought him back as a way to kind of win over votes and revive his premiership, it's a bit of a risk because David Cameron is known um, and his legacy is not just Brexit, but austerity. Um, and he and uh, his Chancellor George Osborne really imposed biting, um, some would argue even devastating um, austerity and cuts across British public services, you know, really um, tightened uh, welfare support benefits. And it was a mission that for them was to cut the deficit and stabilise um, Britain's you know, fiscal um, position. But to others, it was a it is it was a a policy and a, a dogged pursuit of cutting the, the deficit that actually has created the problems we see in Britain today in terms of the crumbling public services that actually the current Tory administration are pledging to fix. 
Um, so it, it's it's that that would mean for some people that is his legacy and that is why he will still be unpopular in places like the north of England that has traditionally been the um, place that has been you know, high levels of inequality compared to the south and compared to London. Daft.ie is the preferred site for anyone buying or selling a home in Ireland. Whether you're taking the first steps or planning your next move, make sure you're on daft.ie, the best place to buy or sell your home in Ireland. And it could be said maybe that Cameron is the least toxic figure here. Theresa May may not fall into this category, but if you look at Liz Truss, Boris Johnson, there have been issues with the leaders that followed, haven't there? Well, he left it obviously in in the uh, somewhat uh, perhaps capable hands of Theresa May, who then obviously then uh, was forced out uh, to be replaced by Boris Johnson, who got Brexit done, as they say. But uh, I was actually at the uh, backbench 1922 committee last night in in Parliament. That is the the famous body you hear about whenever there's a Tory leadership heave, but it's it's really just a backbench committee of uh, Tory MPs and they meet somewhat regularly. They're addressed by whether it's the prime minister or senior cabinet ministers. And they don't actually usually meet on Monday nights, but David Cameron turned up and he even quipped to us journalists who's like being um, back in school. And they were delighted to see him. Um, You know, Theresa May turned out. uh, There were current ministers turned out. There were plenty of backbenchers. There were some people who were ministers in David Cameron's government who are still ministers today turned out to um, see him. Now, there were a few people, I think, who asked questions about, you know, the European Convention on Human Rights and the Rwanda policy, which is obviously the hot topic at the moment in British politics and a major problem for Rishi Sunak. But it was, it was people were quite buoyant. Um, a few MPs who left the meeting, you know, told us uh, waiting journalists with our ears pressed to the door that, you know, it was classic. It was vintage. So, so um, there's obviously a bit of a buzz around him, whether you like or loathe him. There is. I suppose everyone likes uh, a comeback story. Um, and I suppose that's what it is. And I suppose he was as in a prime minister who had real star power and had real star quality. And for some of these um, for some of these younger crop of MPs now, I suppose he was the person who was leader and was prime minister when they were joining um, as well, and when they were kind of rising up through the ranks. I suppose there's um, probably an element of rose-tinted glasses. Um, you know, he was... Prime Minister delivered, you know, electoral success after many years in the wilderness. Um, and I suppose that people enjoy looking back at that. And as you say, he is someone who perhaps is less divisive in Tory circles than perhaps Boris Johnson and perhaps Theresa May, given how Boris Johnson you know, tumbled out of Parliament under a cloud of controversy. But it has to be said, I think, you know, not all MPs would be cheerleading his return, or at least they would have reservations. So, you know, his um, his work since, you know, the Greens the lobbying scandal, um, where, you know, he lobbied several, you know, ministers and civil servants um, in an attempt to secure access for this um, firm to COVID-19 schemes. You know, he didn't break lobbying rules, but he received you know, heavy criticism, of course, his questions about his links to China-backed projects. And of course, his time in office was also... Um, that famous, you know, golden era, as it were, of um, relations between the UK and China. And, you know, the Tory party has moved considerably since he was in office. And there's plenty of people who, you know, really want Richard Sunak at the moment to effectively sever uh, most ties and most links with China. So his 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 um, views on that have been under scrutiny as well from some of the party. And again, some Tory MPs perhaps in, in North of England seat might be uneasy 
at the idea that Richie Sunak is bringing back someone who is better known, you know, as, as Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton for a certain part of England and not necessarily the north of England. And this is it. It probably bears repeating that he is here for foreign affairs issues and not for issues around the north of England so far. And this did come about on the back of a reshuffle by Rishi Sunak. Why did that reshuffle happen? So there's a few reasons. Now, the the, the catalyst for it was um, the need effectively to sack Suella Braverman, the now ex Home Secretary, who was Home Secretary in um, Liz Truss's uh, microsecond premiership, and then, of course, was brought back in uh, with Rishi Sunak. And she was seen as necessary to harness the um, right wing of the Tory party, necessary to win over their support and ensure that Sunak, who was seen as someone who was not as right wing, perhaps more to the centre, to to ensure that they backed him in that kind of those heady, chaotic days uh, following the collapse of Liz Truss. But it somewhat backfired um, in many ways, the appointment of Suella Braverman, because there was repeated instances of her Perhaps you know, very going very close to the line when it came to you know cabinet collective responsibility, making statements that were highly inflammatory, um, and what really did it in for um, Suella Braverman in the last uh, two weeks or so was comments she made about homelessness. She implied that rough sleeping was a lifestyle choice. Um, basically, raised a policy um, that didn't really have any other backing within Camden. And then, of course, she then picked a fight with the Metropolitan Police and really strayed very close to accusing the police effectively of of pro-Palestinian bias regarding the massive protests we've seen in London over recent weeks. She also made a very bizarre comparison to um, marches in Northern Ireland that baffled and angered people in equal measure. So effectively, she was um, she was really doomed from that, and that sparked this reshuffle. But it's important to say that, you know, there was an expectation that Sunak did want to reshuffle anyway, um, that he wanted to promote some of his um, allies and friends into you know, key positions. And so, there, especially ahead of an election, which is expected probably in the next uh, 12 months or so, so that was, you know, there was a reshuffle coming anyway, but it was precipitated by the need to sack Suella Braverman. Well, I did see some commentators say that Braverman couldn't have tried harder to, to be sacked, you know, and that's an, maybe a question for another day. But how were they even able to appoint Cameron? It is quite simple. Um, effectively, uh, you have the House of Commons and you have the House of Lords, uh, which, you know, traditionally was a mixture of hereditary peers and then people who were appointed um, by the prime minister, and it's, and in many ways, it's um, a slightly more uh, not ungainly, but a, a more a less kind of tightly controlled chamber where even the conservatives are a bit more independently minded, and there's actually quite a lot of actually quite detailed scrutiny of of legislation. But um, to go back to David Cameron, all that happened was that Rishi Sunak was able to say, "I'm appointing you to become a peer. He will become a peer now for life." Um, so even if Ricky Sunak loses the next election and David Cameron is out of a job, even if he was sacked tomorrow, he will still be a member of the House of Lords for the rest of his life. And the process for that is actually very straightforward. As I say, it literally is just um, the Prime Minister appointing them. And it has happened before. 
Um, so there was um, someone called Nikki Morgan. She was a culture secretary in 2019, 2020. She was a member of the House of Lords. But for such a high profile role like foreign secretary, you know, in, in the terminology of of the UK, one of the great offices of state, it is incredibly rare. Um, the last time there was a foreign secretary who sat in the Lords was 1979, 1980. And that was a guy called Lord Carrington. So it, it is highly unusual, but the process itself is relatively straightforward. Um, and what I was also interesting compared to Ireland, actually, is that, you know, David Cameron might decide he wants to come back as an MP. And in some ways, it actually could be relatively straightforward. And I'm not, for an instance, saying this would ever happen. But if he did want to, you know, there are such things as safe seats, just about, for the Tories still. Um, unlike under the Irish electoral system, where it's much harder to find a definitely safe seat under the actual system. So it's a bit of a quirk of the system, but it's it's perfectly um, perfectly normal, I guess, under the UK's constitutional rules. But say what you like about those um, maybe another time. So it is technically a possibility then that we could appoint the likes of Bertie or Enda via the Shannad here, asking for a friend, of course. So it's unlikely, but it, it is actually potentially possible. We'd have to go back to the mists of time nearly, but Sean Moylan was a, an anti-treaty IRA member. He was elected in the 30s. Then he actually lost his seat, um, I think, in the 1957 uh, general election, but then was nominated to the Shannon and became the Minister for Agriculture. Uh, there is another example. Uh, James Dooge was appointed uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs very, very briefly uh, by Gareth Fitzgerald, uh, I believe so. Yeah, it's theoretically possible, but whether uh, Bertie would want to return through the route of the Shannons, whether he wants to return at all, who knows? And Dominic, it is really hard to read the tea leaves on this one, though, isn't it? What exactly is in this for Sunak? That is the uh, the million dollar question, um, because no one really knows. And Sunak's political strategies sometimes uh, can be ambiguous and his political instincts can sometimes be somewhat unclear. So, you know, Sunak in the kind of early or midway stage of his still quite short premiership, you know, really shifted to the right. You know, he had Sue Braverman for a reason. Um, he was, you know, he's, he's used quite hard, hard line uh, language on, you know, things like transgender people, really helped to kind of stoke culture war um, issues. He has, you know, taken a hard line um, and kind of diluted some climate change policies to the delight of some right-wing Tory MPs. So there was a sense that he had a strategy, that he was going to position himself as, you know, a kind of harder right prime minister in contrast to, you know, the soft left Keir Starmer, as the Tories would say. Well, they actually would probably say he's further left. But anyway, beside the point. But now he seems to have pivoted in the complete opposite direction. And it's really important to stress that only a few weeks ago, at the Tory party conference in his major um, speech to party members, to the media, to the country. You know, he was talking about how prime ministers over the last 30 years, which includes David Cameron, had failed to make long-term decisions. And he'd cancelled this major rail project, HS2, which had been criticised by David Cameron and other former prime ministers. And so now, he, a few weeks later, he decided to bring that man back into his government. And he's also, in that reshuffle, promoted lots more um, centre, centrist, centre-right um, Tory party uh, min ministers and MPs. So he's completely shifted the axis of his government away from what he was saying only a few weeks ago. 
So it, it, it's, in one sense, maybe it's a genius move, but it's very hard to see the logic to it uh, or find a logic over what Sunak has been saying for the last 12 months. And you mentioned Keir Starmer there and Labour. Will this be good for the Tories, do you think, and bad for Labour? Is it an election ploy? We mentioned the elections there. Again, with all things in British politics, you know, I, I've learned not to predict anything. But, you know, we, we, we'd all thought from watching and listening to the Conservatives for the last few months that, you know, his Richie Sunak's strategy and probably his best strategy, given that the Tories have been in power for 13 years, was to say, no, you know, I am the change candidate. I am a different type of politician to the politicians that we have had before. I am a break with the past, you know, re-elect me. And now it's important to stress how far the Tories are behind Labour in the polls. You know, everyone thinks that Labour will win in some way, shape or form in the next election. But it seems now that, you know, with with having decided to bring David Cameron back, it's much harder for Rishi Sunak to say, I'm a break with the past because the man who was the future once and is now the past is now back again in the present, not to create some bizarre temporal metaphor. But it, so it's, it's a very strange strategy if he wants to present himself as breaking with the past. And it's good for Labour because they can, there is a very um, visceral reminder to all voters of many of the problems that arguably David Cameron had a role in creating in, in recent years. And if we look again at, let's say, the unorthodox way that Cameron has found his way back into the front benches, unlike the other cabinet ministers now, Dominic, he can't be questioned by MPs in the House of Commons about policy. So this was something that actually has caused um, some concern, including from uh, the Speaker of the Commons, uh, Sir Lindsay Hoyle. Um, And just as a member of the Lords, he just cannot sit in the Commons. Now, MPs can question him at parliamentary committees. Um, and parliamentary committees have become, in you know, recent years, relatively more powerful, more high-profile vehicles for grilling politicians, even compared to the Commons. And it's a very similar committee system to that in um, in the Oireachtas. But so the, he's able to be grilled there. But yes, he will not be appearing in the Commons as a member of the Lords. That's not how it works. It's not possible. And of course, you know, MPs can't go over to the House of Lords either and say we want to ask David Cameron a question because that's just not how it works. There's quite a strict separation. Now, his focus will be foreign affairs, as we've mentioned, but is he known to be a diplomat? You did mention his connections with China. Uh, How is he seen internationally? So, you know, as a prime minister and as all prime ministers who were in power for a considerable amount of time, they do have experience um, on the world stage. But you know, David Cameron was not known for his um, you know diplomatic triumphs while in office. I mean, his you know Brexit in part happened because David Cameron failed to get a deal from the European Union that he could then sell back to his own party. Now, arguably, he could have brought the moon; and they might not have accepted it. But you know, his his um, travels around European capitals, you know, from 20, 2010 onwards to try and get a better deal didn't really bear fruit back home. And of course, then, you know, he was hit by some quite serious, you know, foreign policy disasters. So if you remember the decision, the international coalition to um, impose a no-fly zone over Libya, the, the Libya intervention ended, you know, in chaos and disaster and civil war in Libya, where the country has not recovered, really. And there was you know, arguably no plan for what happens after you remove um, Gaddafi. And then, of course, he was actually had a, a 
a shocking, really, um, parliamentary defeat over the decision or the, the intention to join, again, a bombing of the Syrian armed forces, if you remember that. And he lost that motion in the House of Commons. And, you know, it's incredibly, incredibly rare. I think you would go back hundreds of years to find another prime minister who'd suffered a foreign policy defeat like that in the Commons. Um, so, you know, he's a man who has international experience, but he was not hailed um, during his time in office as this uh, remarkable diplomat who was, you know, um, leading the charge on the world stage. In comparison, actually, you might say to Gordon Brown, whose efforts during, you know, the global financial crisis were praised afterwards. So, you know, Cameron... A mixed record when it comes to uh, international relations. Yeah, look, it's interesting that you mentioned Libya there and Syria in particular because he's going to face major challenges now in the Middle East with Israel and Hamas. How is he likely to approach that? I don't expect we will see any major shift in policy. I don't think he's going to do anything hugely different from his predecessor, James Cleverly, who should be pointed out was also quite well regarded in the role and was quite sad to move to the role of Home Secretary. But I, I don't foresee any major shifts in that regard, especially when you know the UK's position is cleaving, of course, quite heavily to that of the US and Joe Biden's administration. Um, so I imagine he will be you know, working hard on that issue. And you know, it, is the, it is the major issue at the moment, but I don't foresee any major shifts. Yeah, that special relationship that we all had to digest for Manny's the year has fallen by the wayside a little in the last few years. That's got to be front and centre too. Yeah, I think so. Um, But of course, it's important to remember that, you know, again, there is only potentially 12 months until the next election. So there's actually not a huge amount of time for David Cameron to make his mark on the role. Of course, he'll also be dealing with um, the war in Ukraine. Um, He visited Kyiv. There was one of his first visits as foreign secretary, um, something that um, you know, many that's I say multiple UK prime ministers uh, and foreign secretaries have made that journey as well to show that kind of solidarity to um, President Zelensky. So you know he will be he will be hoping to make an impact, but there actually isn't that much time. And some of these crises we've seen are are very intractable, you know, on the world stage. And China in particular, Dominic, you mentioned it earlier. It is a tricky time, isn't it, between the US and China on the global stage. This has got to be on the horizon too. Mm. And it's, I mean, it's important to recognise that um, David Cameron does actually have a relationship with uh, Xi Jinping. Um, you know, he famously a pint with the Chinese leader um, in England and gave him a very grand uh, ceremonial state visit. And they really did try to charm um, China and boost relations with, with the country. But again, in the years since, obviously, we've seen relations deteriorate. We've seen tensions grow. Um, and I suppose Cameron's experience may come in handy. It may be a benefit. But as I said earlier, there are questions about whether he is necessarily um, as necessarily tough on China as some Tory MPs who have been sanctioned by China um, would like. So he's going to have, as mentioned, a huge body of work ahead of him. But could we potentially see David Cameron climb the ranks and become prime minister again? <laughs> Anything is possible. Who knows? Who knows? Um, I would say uh, I honestly, I have no idea. I, you know, the last few months and the last few years of British politics have been such a roller coaster um, that any comeback is possible. I mean, everyone thought Boris might make a comeback. Now it's actually David Cameron who's made the comeback. I, I doubt that he would want to be prime minister again. I really think, I really think that after 
having fallen out of politics uh, and, you know, ruined his political career with the failure to win the Brexit referendum. You know, he was still very, he's still, he's still relatively young. He was a very young man, relatively young man for a politician when he, when he lost uh, the referendum and had to resign. So I think it's really about uh, him wanting just to have a different uh, footnote to his political career. Now, his allies have briefed that he's a man who believes in public service, and I'm sure that's true, but I would I would also suspect that it is that desire for a better ending to his, his political story. I think uh, you mentioned Boris, will he ever come back? I could wager that you and I will be sitting here in the not-too-distant future talking about exactly that. But uh, finally... Dominic, why do you think the UK is suffering the ghosts of Brexit past? This just coming up to Christmas, Cameron is back in Parliament and Nigel Farage, of all people, has popped up in the Aussie jungle. What is happening? I, I wish I knew. Um, maybe Brexit is, is so long in the past that there's a nostalgia for um, all these all these big, colourful characters. But I wish I knew. All I say is I will not be watching Nigel Farage in the jungle. You couldn't pay me enough. I, I don't believe you for a second. <laughs> Look, thanks so much, Dominic. Whatever happens, as you say, with UK politics in the last few years, it is liable not to be dull in any way. So thank you so much, Dominic, for your time on this today. Thank you. This episode of The Explainer was supported by daft.ie. With the largest number of properties for sale in Ireland and being the number one preferred site among buyers and sellers, daft.ie is the best place to buy or sell your home. Thanks again to Dominic McGrath for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>